America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Hi, I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, we're going to talk about public choice theory. You ready for this, Ron? I am, Ed, even though we're not sitting in our studios in Allen. Well, I'm not. You are. <laughs> yes. I'm at the studio in Allen. You're in the studio in Petaluma. <laughs> and yes, but this is a fascinating topic, Ron. And I want to first start off by saying I, I plan to, to broaden this a little bit beyond just what is traditionally known of as public choice theory because it's really, the in, in one sense, the economics of government. Uh, not yes. finance of government, but the economics of government and 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 decision making. But I think it has a significant impact in, as well on group decision making at any group, uh, because we all know how we make decisions as individuals. We think about it. Some of us longer than others. Some of us agonize over it for longer periods of time, depending upon what the thing is that we're trying to decide. And then, you know, we come to some conclusion and, and we just move forward. And one of the things that I think is interesting is a question that's that now asked is, well, how does a group make decisions? Because a group collectively can't make a decision in the same way that you and I make a decision. In other words, we think about it quietly in our heads. We actually have to express this out to others and have conversations with others and ultimately get to some kind of a group decision. So I'm going to we're going to broaden the topic. But. Uh, we'll first start off by talking about, hey, what, Ron, what, what is your definition or your, the best definition that you've come across for public choice theory? Well, I actually use the definition that James Buchanan, uh, one of the founders, at least of the Virginia School, and I think right. he was the original founder, him and his uh, colleague Gordon Tullock, uh, he defined it as uh, public choice theory describes the extension of analysis to the political alternatives to markets. <laughs> so that was kind of how unpack he put it. Unpack that one. Yeah, yeah unpack y- that y- a little. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, people say, well, there's market failure, right? So we, we, we need government to come in and intervene. And then he, what he's saying is, well, okay, to the same analysis we bring to markets, we can bring to the political realm, because just like actors in a market face incentives and have preferences, so do people in government or politics. They also face a set of constraints and incentives and trade-offs and everything that 
actors in the marketplace do. You know, this idea that the government is just going to be able to solve anything because they have more better or more perfect or better information than the market uh, is, is kind of a false notion, right? There's just humans. It's just nobody here but us people in government, and we people face incentives no matter in what sphere they act. And, of course, we have a different incentives as individuals, and we have incentives as, as to what we want our legacy to be, perhaps, even. So the, the, there are positives and negatives to this this idea. I don't think it's it's all a downside, although I will say that the Virginia School, as you called it, uh, G- James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock at George Mason, were pretty pretty anti-government. They were <laughs> They were pretty against the idea of government. They were. They were on the libertarian side, but I mean, it was grounded in, in, in bringing the same type of rational arguments, uh, you know, to government analysis and public policy that economists bring to, to the market. Uh, one thing, Ed, that I find fascinating is, you know, a lot of economists are blamed for having this religious faith in markets. But you know what? No other profession has pointed out more market failures than economists. I mean, Milton Friedman was adamant about market failure and, and documented many where the, where the market fails. Mm-hmm. And, and economists have, have a broad literature on market failure. It's not that they're not afraid to tackle it or admit it. It's, and what this school did, I think, the public choice theory did, was it said, okay, yeah, there's market failure, but you know what? Sometimes when you replace it with a government policy or regulation – all you're doing is substituting market failure for government failure. And since there's no such thing as solutions, there's only trade-offs, you know, we have to decide what's better here, a market failure or a government failure. And and to that point, I mean, ultimately, the where I think the, the failure in a sense begins is that democracy in a sense has – sows the the seeds of its own destruction in the fundamental idea of democracy, which is usually put forward this way, one person, one vote. Right. And the, and the failure that, 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 or why that is a, a failure is because one person, one vote does not take into account any level of intensity. How yes. much do you, how much do you want this person over that person, right? It just says it says A over B or A over B and C, and that's it. And I think one of the things that we'll talk about perhaps a little bit later on the on the show is how how we can prove that that kind of decision making, that one person one vote, can actually lead to distorted results. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I guess I had to go back to your original question about how I think about this. And again, I'm borrowing from uh, Gordon Tullock again. He called public choice theory, and I love this definition, politics without romance. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this idea we pound our fist on the table, there ought to be a law, you know, there ought to be a regulation that will solve this problem. I mean, that's kind of, you know, it's kind of romantic to think that the government can come in and solve all these problems. But um, if you take a hard-headed look at it, you, you find that a lot of these policies come up short. And one of the things that Buchanan and Tullock also, a point they made was any formula for government intervention that ignores political realities is unscientific. They thought we needed to bring the same rigor and analysis to government that we did to market failure or just markets in general. And I think that's a really interesting point. 
It, it is. A, it's a great point. And, and th- look, I think this goes back to their book called The Calculus of Consent, Logical Foundations in Constitutional Democracy as their, their, their preeminent book on this topic. And you know, they, they, they point out that, hey, there is a, pr- there's a problem here with methodology. And what I, what I find fascinating about this is, is the quote that you just mentioned. I find so many people are in denial about that. And that's on both sides of the, the, the political spectrum right now, the, 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 the aisle. We have Republicans and Democrats who think that government, by definition, must have the solution to the problems. Absolutely, especially you look what's going on in Baltimore or whatever. And, um, you know, I think it was Irving Kristol who was kind of the father of the neoconservative movement. I mean, the original father, you know, these mm-hmm. were kind of New Deal Democrats that got got disenfranchised by the, the Great Society program. So they became, you know, they, they, the joke is, you know, a, a neoconservative was a liberal mugged by reality. Um, and <laughs> they they asked Irving Kristol, and he was quite a scholar, quite a thinker, and wrote lots of books. And, and somebody asked him in an interview, if there was one myth you could dispel from the public, what would it be? And he said, the idea that government causes no harm. Wow. And and I think that's what public choice is kind of shedding light on. It's documenting, you know, the negative consequences here. I mean, obviously, any policy you can there's there's going to be positive effects, but there's also going to be negative effects. And just as Thomas Sowell said when we interviewed him, you know, economics is a way of of looking at the trade offs, right? Mm-hmm. Weighing one value against another, and public choice has just brought that into the government realm. And I and I think there's three, and I know you want to go into the groupthink thing, and I think that's fascinating. We can also talk about democracy, but let's just talk just for a second, or maybe the rest of the segment on the three, I think big insights Ed, from public choice economics. Sure, that, and, that'd be and, great. And 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 the first one is the special interest group effect, mm-hmm. right? And, and and my favorite example of this is the sugar program. You know, we subsidize sugar growers in this country. Now, it's absolutely insane because it keeps the price higher. We as Americans pay a higher price for sugar than the world market price and have been for decades. Um, and it costs you and me and the average American about $9 and a quarter every year. So you know what? I'm not going to get really excited about nine and a quarter. I doubt you are. I doubt it's probably, you know, you're probably not even motivated to write your congressman about it. But the sugar growers, on average, and this is an average number, mm-hmm. uh, the sugar grow- growers earn $617,000 per year. This, these are 2012 figures, by the way, mm-hmm. for, for the sugar subsidies. So now they have every incentive to lobby for it, work hard for it, establish lobbyists in Washington and all that, right? I mean, we're all going to pay far more attention to what we produce than what we consume. Mm-hmm. So this idea of concentrated benefits and diffuse costs. <laughs> I love that phraseology, concentrated benefits, diffuse costs, right? Because I think that, that absolutely sums up this idea of special interest in, in, a, in a really concise package and makes a lot of sense. It's not hard to understand that, right? So the benefits are to the few, but the costs are to the many, and no one is going to get all that upset. As you said, nobody's writing their congressman over the, the, the $10 roughly subsidy that I'm going to um, pay to the sugar producers. One of the, I think, the more fascinating outcomes of this as I begin to study this subject in a little bit more depth 
is, and I forget who, who mentions this, I know that there's a number of scholars on Cato Institute, at Cato Institute, who talk a lot about this, and they say is that the surprise here is not that there's money in politics, but how little money there is in politics. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I, I think George Will or somebody brought up the point that we spend more money on chewing gum <laughs> than on political elections. And, and it's fascinating when you think about it because how much money is at stake in the government budgets? It's enormous. Yeah. So in, in that sense, what I think what they're saying is that it, we, we, while we have K Street and all of the, the lobbying firms that are there, it's actually pretty incredible that th- there's not more of them. Yep. Given given what's at stake, the 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 billions and perhaps now even trillions of dollars that would be it's up for grabs, uh, the more and more the government controls of the economy. Right, right, yeah, no. So I really do. I think the special interest uh, effect, uh, you know, this concentrated benefits diffuse cost is 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 really right on, and and it also kind of makes me think about rent control. I mean, rent can, you know, there's, I, I don't think, I, I think you could uh, fit all the economists in the world into a phone booth and <laughs> still have room for, you know, a portly person uh, that would support rent control. But I think one of the reasons that politicians do it is, let's face it, there's more renters than landlords. Yep. Well, so, and on the, on the word rent there, the the next one we'll talk about is rent seeking. But first, we're going to do a our first break. But before we go to that break, we want to remind you that the best way to get a hold of us is to send us an email at tsoe at verisage.com. And that will be sent both to Ron and myself. You can look for show notes, of course, at verisage.com slash tsoe. And we are very close, Ron. I think we mentioned this last week to, a, to having a full website dedicated to nothing but the soul of enterprise. You can go to the soul of enterprise.com today it's not fully functional but we'd love for you to to check that out and let us know what you think of it and also the last thing we are following and monitoring hashtag ask tsoe during the show so if you have a question for us on public choice theory we'd like to to share your thoughts on it or or uh, perhaps ask a detailed question go ahead and do that in 140 characters and <laughs> <laughs> but before but before that, uh, we want to hear from our first sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are Leading Results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. 
The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We'd like to remind you that you can find us on Facebook, too, and like us there at Facebook.com slash AskTSOE. And uh, as Ed said, you can follow us live on Twitter at hashtag AskTSOE. And we know many of you listen on demand, and we really appreciate it if you could write an iTunes review for us. That would be an enormous help. Uh, I know a few of you have in, in the last few weeks, so that's been wonderful. Thank you very much. And so, Ed, we're talking about, I think I said three insights from Public Choice, but I need to say four. <laughs> it's actually four major insights. Um, from at least the Virginia School, Buchanan and Tolick. Um And we talked about the special interest group effect, but let's talk about uh, rent-seeking. Um, this, this idea that, you know, it's easier to lobby the government than it is to innovate, market, and, and take care of customers. So companies set up these lobbying groups and they lobby for various things, regulations to, to hamper competition or... Uh, protectionism, you know, tariffs against foreign competition, things like that. But the thing that's really, um, I, I think, a, a, such a deleterious effect of the rent seeking is that it this redistribution it just transfers money back and forth. It doesn't create a bigger pie, right? Which is a, a big, huge problem. That's that, that's where entrepreneurship has to has to come in, and where where government interferes by just reshuffling the cards that's all it does yep and and it, you know passes these special bills and you know even in the case like solyndra you know the however much money went to them and a whole bunch of other uh companies i mean this is just um <laughs> you know it's so wasteful because it doesn't really add anything to uh the the standard of living or the wealth of the economy well, give an example of rent-seeking, Ron. I think just what would be the best example you come up with? You gave a great one with the sugar subsidies for, uh, the, for the idea of special interest. But what about rent-seeking? I guess, you know, I think of tariffs come to mind, you know, blocking out foreign competition. I remember during the Reagan administration that, you know, he he made a sop to Harley-Davidson and slapped these enormous tariffs on uh, foreign motorcycles, which at the time were really uh, <laughs> killing Harley-Davidson, Kawasaki, and, you know, I don't remember them all, BMW, whatever. Um, but that would be a great example. You know, here here's a company, Harley-Davidson, which is great now. I know they've got back orders for years, but back then they were struggling because they were making a crappy product that nobody wanted, and they ran to the government with their hat in their hand, and, and we help them out, and it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, Melton Friedman used to say, you want to get rid of monopolies? <laughs> Absolute open and free trade and get mm-hmm. rid of all tariffs, and you won't have – Many of the monopolies that we're worried about will be gone in a heartbeat with with unfettered international competition. 
And and the the metaphor here on rent seeking is that it's 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 someone who is occupying a space, sort of like a renter, right? Someone who they they happen to 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 have a market position that they just hold on to, but since they can't do it via innovation, they do it through government fiat. Is really the the what they're we're shooting for. Yep, absolutely. Now, and I think we'll get into this a little bit later, but would you say that the, we, 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 there's a great um, metaphor for this called the bootleggers and Baptist? Is that a, a rent seeking type? Yes, yes, the bootleggers and Baptists. What a great, this is a fantastic book. Uh, it's called Bootleggers and Baptists How Economic Forces and Moral Persuasion Interact to Shape Regulatory Policies, is the name of the book. And of course, folks will post this on our show notes. But, you know, what, the, what they're talking about is that. Uh, durable social re- regulation evolves when it is demanded by both two distinctly different groups, Baptists and bootleggers. And, of course, this comes from the famous uh, laws requiring liquor stores to close on Sundays. Now, that was something that was supported by the Baptists because they were anti-alcohol, believed in prohibition. But the bootleggers loved it, too, right? Because uh, if, if the liquor stores closed on Sundays, then the demand for their product went up that much more. So here you have these two co- coalitions coming together, one for the moral high ground, the Baptists, and the other for their own naked self-interest, the bootleggers. And. and- they call this an extension of public choice or, or a branch of it. Mm-hmm. But, but I think it, the best example of it, it, it really is about rent-seeking. In the end, of the, of the, the four outcomes of public choice, it's rent-seeking that, that bootleggers and Baptists is the, is the most closely related to. And yes. it, what, I, what I find fascinating about this piece of this topic is that, that the examples continuously spring up. It, it, it's not like it just happened once back when they were trying to close liquor stores on Sundays. They happen to this day. In fact, we'll post a video of on one that is has happened in the last couple of months, and that is that the cigarette companies, the the, the tobacco uh, producers, are in alignment with the very same people who were trying to shut them down, the anti-smoke crowd. Yeah. So the, the, the so the anti-smoke crowd in this case, of course, is the is the Baptist. Well, n- now guess what? The pro- tobacco producers have become the bootlegger by pushing their product because what they don't want is vapor cigarettes. So they they are lobbying alongside of the very same people who were trying to get their product banned effectively to. So those two people are going and saying, "Hey, listen, we need we need laws that say you can't smoke, but you can't vape." which is the term, you can't have your vapor cigarette in the same place either. <laughs> you know, public uh, or, or bootleggers and Baptists, uh, it kind of puts some uh, meat on the bones of the whole politics makes strange bedfellows. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it really does explain it. I, one of the examples they point out in the book is Amazon, uh, you know, got this five-year exemption from sales tax to, to locate a distribution center in South Carolina. Now, Amazon is accused by the Baptists uh, of, of selling, you know, pornography, right? Mm-hmm. I guess certain videos and movies or whatever, books. And uh, so they teamed up with the bootleggers who were Walmart. Best Buy and Target, obviously <laughs> brick and mortar. And they said, you know, this is going to kill Main Street and blah, blah, blah. They always couch it in terms of saving the morals of the society or saving the children or, you know, there's always some higher. It's not the Baptist don't, doesn't just mean a religious. It, it means there's got to be some type of higher moral social reason for all 
for all this, but the two got the two usually end up cooperating, and, and sometimes Ed, they don't cooperate. And that's one of the ways uh, that these guys explain that sometimes it happens where they're not cooperating, but they're still kind of shooting for the same thing. So it's just a real interesting theory, and I think it's got a, an enormous amount of explanatory power on some of these alliances, like the e-cigarette thing yep. you just mentioned for sure. And, and the and the other one that's that's pretty recent too is the medical marijuana growers and the the folks who want to to not to legalize marijuana, <laughs> right? Absolutely. They're, they're, they've joined together in 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 states like California because, of course, the medical marijuana people make a boatload of money, a boatload of cash, and they have a corner on the market because you can only sell it for medical purposes. So they don't they don't want marijuana legalized at all. So they're actually working in cahoots with the people who want. Who are, who are who want to keep the war on drugs alive? Just an incredible connection. It is. I mean, up in Humboldt County, which I forget how much money uh, you know is is involved in marijuana up there, but it's it's an enormous amount. You'll see bumper stickers that say "Keep Pot Illegal." And it, they're kind of in cahoots with, uh, you know, sponsored by the mar- medical marijuana growers. <laughs> yeah, they, they're obviously in cahoots with religious people who are anti-marijuana, but also state law enforcement officials because you know they run the prison systems. And hey, we get we put people in jail yep. uh, for having you know small amounts of marijuana or used to, and and um, you know so it's it's a real interesting alliance, but very explanatory in terms of. Of, of why you see some very strange coalitions, environmentalists and, and business, you know, coal companies and things like that teaming up, uh, you know, sponsoring certain legislation or bills or regulations. And uh, I think these two guys in this book have really done a great job explaining why this happens. Yep. All right. Well, talk about the third effect, and that is rational ignorance. Yeah, this is something, you know, economists think we're rationally ignorant. That it just, you know, because, hey, getting information or becoming knowledgeable, say, about the election, right, the candidates' positions and all that, it takes time. And, you know, we're going to just be rationally ignorant about it. Um, you're going to put more time, obviously, in developing your job skills or, or making major purchases. My guess is you spend a lot more time thinking about what car or house to buy than you ever would thinking about your vote in a presidential election, right? Um, so, and, and, and the economist's point about this is you'll only get a small amount of benefits, you know, for, for placing the right vote, or you'll only pay the, a small amount of costs for, for placing the wrong vote, right? Like the nine and a quarter sugar subsidy that we're all paying. Well, kind of big deal. So we, we remain rationally ignorant. Now, I can expand on this, but we'll do it in a different segment. But there was there's a fantastic book called The Myth of the Rational Voter by a guy named Brian Kaplan. I believe he's a Cato fellow. And it, it's uh, he's explaining, Ed, why voters are predictably irrational. <laughs> Just like Dan Ariely, you know, his book, Predictably Irrational. And he also has got... Uh, kind of a four-step or four-part uh, thesis on this, and I, I find it fascinating, but we can talk about that uh, in another segment. But the, the fact that we're rationally ignorant, that your vote won't determine an outcome of an election, so why should you put that much thought into it? 
and you know this brings up the question of of should should we have as as uh, President Obama has proposed should we say that that you have to vote you know if and then you'd be fined if you don't wouldn't that just preclude more of this rational ignorance and more people just voting I I personally would like to go the other way I would like to see us remove party labels completely from. All races, not just you know, we we have what are called the so-called nonpartisan races uh, that are usually local elections, perhaps mayor in your town, or certainly school school board. Usually, there's not a party affiliation that's that is uh, put on the ballot. But I'd like to see you remove it. You know, it, uh, is it really that that much to ask of someone who's voting in a democracy to know the name and and background and policies of the person that he wants to vote for or she? Right, right. Well, you know, this is another point that Kaplan makes in this book, the the myth of the rational voter, that we, we underestimate the beneficial effects of a market and we overestimate the positive effects of democracy. And he thinks there's systematic errors in 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 voters, and that's why he thinks they're irrational, not just ignorant, but but they make actually irrational votes. And he says, having more democracy, having more people vote, <laughs> is not going to make that situation better. No, no, <laughs> like I, the errors aren't going to sh- cancel out. No, they're not going to cancel out. And, I, and I'm pretty sure that that he's he's the one I, I I think I've heard him talk about about this, and he makes a very interesting point that's quite controversial. He he says, you know, voting may be a right, but it doesn't mean you should do it. And the example that he talks about, he says, you can one one can go about writing a book like Mein Kampf. That doesn't mean one should. Should right, <laughs> <laughs> right? You have you have the right to do that, but it doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it correct. I should say. And I think that's a fascinating point that you maybe maybe if you are uh, an, a, a, a voter who doesn't understand, maybe you should stay away from the polls. Maybe that is the best thing uh, for you to do is not not to vote unless you really do have an understanding, which is why I think that taking away these party labels might begin to encourage that. But, Ron, look at this. We're already up on the second break, and we still have one more the bundling effect to talk about, but that's going to lead into, I think, the conversation that we're going to have is how would we apply this to everyday business because it does get to the whole concept of of voting. So we'll talk about that after our second break, but please, before that, if you would, Ron, as mentioned earlier, go out to iTunes and write a review. We'd love to have reviews, and they're very helpful for us. So if you like the work that we're doing here on the Soul of Enterprise, that is perhaps one of the best ways that you can do uh, help us. Also, tweet us out. Uh, we would love to, to hear your questions at hashtag AskTSOE and certainly look for the show notes at verisage.com slash TSOE. But right now we're going to take a, a break and talk to our friends at uh, Peter Wolf and the good folks at Azamba. Making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's Azamba. 
A-C-A-M-B-A.com forward slash soul. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, thanks, folks. And just as a, as a reminder, we do really love for you to talk to our sponsors. That is, of course, Sage and the folks at Azamba and then uh, Leading Results as well. So please visit their websites. That's the other thing that you can do to help help us out to, is to, to pay it back to them and, and let them know that, hey, you're listening to the show and you'd love to talk to some of the to them about what are the things that they have to offer. You know, Ron, where I was introduced to this topic, and and I'll, I'm curious as to your thoughts on bundling, which we'll we'll talk about next. But I was introduced to this topic, and I didn't even know what this what this topic was called. This is a book I read a long, long time ago called The Abilene Paradox. Mm-hmm. I got the name of Jerry B. Harvey on on group the group dynamics of decision making and you know he tells this story about sitting in his uh, on the on the porch in his home in Texas on a hot July night with his in-laws and his wife and and you know he just says because everyone else seemed bored hey listen why don't we go in Abilene and get some ice cream now Abilene's <laughs> like 50 something miles away right and they all they have is i think a 1958 beat up Buick with no air conditioning and <laughs> <laughs> and his his wife to be su- the supportive spouse says sure honey let's go into Abilene of course that is if if my mom wants to and and his, her mom says well of course I want to go to Abilene I haven't been there in years and the dad says hey what the heck let's go let's go have fun in well it's a miserable trip <laughs> right the the car breaks down it's 103 in the shade at nine ten o'clock at night you know and they're like well why did we well I just did it because you said to <laughs> there's it turns out that push came to shove. None of them actually wanted to go to Abilene right. at all. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. I, and I think that's a get, that's a lead in for your for the next piece, which which is to talk about the the, the fourth uh, learning from public choice theory, and that is this idea of bundling. Yeah, and this kind of in in the context of democracy, you know, democracy is kind of a crappy way to make decisions. I mean, if you think about democracy. In, in your individual life, would, would you decide what state to live in or who to marry or what car to buy based on popular vote, you know, among your friends and family? No, I mean, that would be insane. But this is how we make, you know, massive decisions. And the, the bundling effect was best explained, I think, by Donald Boudreau in a, in a article I read by him. And he said, imagine you, you having to pick between two pre-filled shopping carts at the supermarket. Right now, the supermarket owner would let you look at the food, right? But you had to pick the cart in total. You couldn't, you couldn't 
move items back and forth between the carts. You had to go with a prepackaged bundle. And that's what we're doing when we vote for any type of a candidate, right? We're voting for a bundle of packages. So I might like where somebody stands on tariffs or marijuana or drug law or abortion or whatever, but I might not like a bunch of other, but I don't get to, you know, pick and choose. And he said the issue with this is that we can't say anything about the majority's preferences for any one individual policy based on an election. So that means that politicians don't know necessarily why they won or why their opponents lost. So true. And what this does a perfect lead in for this, because this is going to be the bridge to the, the group dynamic of decision making and how, how it applies. And what's fascinating about this is that Look, this is not new. It was this French guy way way back in the 1700s. His name was uh, uh, Condorcet. Has uh, uh, was called Condorcet's theorem, which which talks about the fact that in a in an election, if we overlay all of our preferences in an election, the result will be what he called the median voter, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, which is what you get, the median voter. But because democracy as one person, one vote for a single candidate does not take into account this idea of preferences, well, this median voter is, is sometimes the worst possible decision. So let me, let me try to paint this out because this is very difficult to explain without a, a chart or a graph or something. So you're going to have to – so those of you at home are going to have to play along and imagine this with me. And what it, what is interesting is that what we're going to have imagine a, a, an x y graph and our x axis by the way which is called in this called the conflict dimension isn't that like ooh <laughs> I love it <laughs> right how, how about that for confusing it's just the x axis okay and and say you had three three points along this axis and the, it's probably best illustrated by using a, a military objective so say that the, what you the, the the what is before the people is this idea that we go into and and, and invade a country and because the uh, person who is in control of that country we believe to be an enemy of the United States and we need to take them out okay mm-hmm. so what we have is if you're if you're the the uh, the hawk, uh, what you're saying is, hey, let's spend, I'm going to make up a number here, $2 trillion on this. You know, let's, let's spend $2 trillion. We'll go in, we'll take them out, we'll nation build, we'll do whatever it is that we need to do. But say you were in the hawk in, in the model of Colin Powell, right, who said, well, that's my first preference to go in there and spend $2 trillion. But if, 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 we, if I can't rally enough people around that, my second preference would be to spend nothing, mm, not mm-hmm. going to spend anything, right? So that's, that's his, his x-axis graph is now what's called double humped, right? So he's got a big preference on $2 trillion. He doesn't want to spend $1 trillion at all, and he wants to spend – and his second choice, although it's a lower hump like a camel, would be to spend nothing, right. okay? Well, now we have a dove. And the dove says, you know what? We shouldn't spend anything. I th- don't think that we have any right to go in and take somebody out who hasn't committed uh, you know, an atrocity against the United States directly. So I think we should spend absolutely nothing on this. But their second preference might not be to spend $1 trillion. Their second preference might be, but if we go in, let's go in all the way. All the way. Right. Back to the We're two at, trillion. Back, yeah, back to the two trillion. So that would be their their second preference. Well, of course, the the person in the middle, which would be the median voter, 
and and this is where uh, Condorcet's theorem is is instruct instructing in this, but it also then breaks down his theory is to say, okay, well, what you re- what the result is is the median voter, which is we spend one trillion, which is what two thirds roughly in this particular case, assuming an even distribution of people, which is what two thirds of the people want, mm-hmm. right? Only one third of the people actually want to spend one million dollars, <laughs> right? Right. right? Um, so when you overlay all of those choices, you, what you end up with is this median vote, vote because this doesn't take into account preference, right? Uh, or the intensity, I'm sorry. It doesn't take into account intensity. Yeah. And uh, where I think this, this plays into our decision-making in business is the fact very often times, Ron, and you, you're probably aware of this in the consulting work that you do, is if, if we do have – say we do a, a brainstorming meeting where we come up with a big list of ideas, right? And we narrow that list down. How do we narrow that list down? And well, somebody says, well, okay, let's just vote. And they throw in the one person, one vote idea, because that's our framework. That's our metaphor, yep. right? Well, it, what do you end up with is what is the, is the median voter, which is probably not what anybody in that room wants. This is how you end up with a trip to Abilene, yeah. right? <laughs> Because, yep. we, we, because we can't express our preferences. Now, fortunately, there are a couple of things that you as a, a, a leader, as a manager, can do to change this. And I'll, I'll quickly dis- describe them. So, again, let's assume this is a situation in business where you've got this brainstorming session going. You've got a whole wanking list of stuff that you want to do. The first thing that I would do is to, to get that list narrowed down to something a little bit more manageable is, is to do what is called N3 analysis. And the N is like the, uh, an N and then a slash three. And it, it simply means this. Take the number of issues that you have, the number of possibilities that you have on the list, and divide that number by three. That yields the number of votes that the, number, that the people in the room then have. Right, So right. if you have 17 items, you divide it by three, and you throw out the remainder, okay, everybody gets five votes. And so that you can express preferences, the way that you do it is you say, okay, you can put all five of your votes on one thing, or three on one and two on another, or one on five separate ones. Yeah. Right? And what I found that that does is, is that gets the list down to something a little bit more manageable. Because you, know, you, can't, you can't make a decision on 17. So how do we bring that down to maybe you know, three to five? Well, you, doing this N3 analysis is an amazing tool that really allows us to get it down to that three to five. And then the next question is, is well, once you get to three to five, should you just vote? No. <laughs> There's actually uh, two more ways that I think decision-making is better made in a business by applying two other things that we've learned from uh, public choice theory, and that is, one, to allow people to rank order the five that are left with you know maybe one being the, the, the most preferable and five being the least preferable. And then it's like golf, Ron. You'll like this. The lowest score wins, right? Right, so. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So that's one. And then the other one, which I, I find interesting, is to, is to use what's called approval voting. So say, again, you have it down to five choices, five possibilities. And what you say is each person is allowed to vote yay or nay on each of the five. So, and then what you do is you say, okay, the one that gets the most number of yays is the most preferable. 
Mm-hmm. And that really solves, I think, the the the, the Abilene paradox. It solves all, uh, it, it, because it allows the expression of intensities um, o- over th- through that kind of a voting system. But I think the big mistake that a lot of people make is to try to come to quote unquote, and I know one of your favorite words is consensus, <laughs> which what did Thatcher and Margaret Thatcher say is a lack, the absence of leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, but consensus through the use of a a majority wins. One person, one vote metaphor, and that uh, that I can tell you does not work. As a consultant, I've seen it. See, I've seen it fail way more than it succeeds, and it's mostly because of this idea of of the the idea of a median median voter. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes complete sense. It makes complete sense. The uh, whole group think, um, you know, perils of group think. Um, it is it is very difficult to overcome because it's systemic. Anytime you get a group of people together. Yeah, it truly does. Truly does because there, well, what Woody Allen defined what is it? Uh, politics as as three people in a room. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, H. L. Mencken went a step further. He said, "Democracy is the pathetic belief in the collective wisdom of individual ignorance." <laughs> 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 and and that this is one of uh, Brian Kaplan's big points in the myth of the rational voter that there it's not just that voters are ignorant he's saying they're irrational and that's even worse because he thinks there's a systemic bias built in to democracy and he he calls it a built-in externality which is a very interesting take on it. So I want to come back and uh, and 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 dive in just a little bit into hi- in, in what those systemic biases are from his book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, uh, by Brian Kaplan. But folks, in the meantime, I'd like to remind you that you can follow and get all the show notes and the books that Ed and I are mentioning on this show, as well as the videos uh, on uh, at uh, verisage dot com slash. TSOE, and you can contact Ed or myself at TSOE at Verisage.com. But now we want to hear from our sponsor, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. 
To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Wow, we've been talking about a fascinating topic called public choice theory. We've talked about bootleggers and Baptists, regulatory capture, red seeking. And lest you think that this is something that is new, it's absolutely not. There's a great story about in the first Congress, how what was brought up before Congress was where are we going to build the United States Post Office, the main hub of the United States Post Office. And, of course, you know, the guys from New York said, hey, we should build it in New York. And the guys from from uh, Pennsylvania said, we should build it in Philadelphia, Boston, Charleston, etc. And all of these bills were brought up and failed. They couldn't get a, a decision made on where they would build post offices until someone, I forget who, had the ingenious plan to say, hey, what if we were to build one major post office in each of the states <laughs> and put it up to for vote in one bill? Guess what happened, Ron? <laughs> <laughs> Gee, I'm shocked. <laughs> <laughs> passed with flying colors everybody supported it this so this this is nothing new it is a particular uh, challenge of, of for for democracy and 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 i think that you know what you you want to talk a little bit more about brian kaplan's book and about the four the four biases that that happen due to the this myth of the irrational voter right because he's he's basically saying ed that they're the, the the average voters are worse than ignorant. They're irrational, and and you know he said we're 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 asking voters to do brain surgery when most of them couldn't pass basic anatomy, <laughs> <laughs> and so he talks about these. Uh, he, he talks about the wisdom of crowds. You know that whole idea of the wisdom of crowds and prediction markets or something like that. But it doesn't work with voting because of sy- systematic errors. He thinks so. He's identified in the book four biases that that most voters have and just real quickly the first one is the anti-market bias this is our tendency to underestimate the benefits of the market mechanism right there's just so much we've talked about this so much in so many different ways on the show the eye pencil the toaster project you know the that the markets aren't really based on competition so much as they are in cooperation and it's cooperations of millions and millions of people and they just do this seamlessly um, through the price mechanism and and people the average person who who Kaplan says never takes an economics course doesn't really understand how a market works now you might argue that's a cynical view but he's got a lot of empirical evidence in the book to back up his his claims and he says our second bias is the anti-foreign bias we have a tendency to underestimate the economic benefits of interactions with foreigners. So you see this manifested in the trade deficit concerns, um, you know, or uh, you know, he, he says, look, do you think investing your entire life savings in a poor country seems like a painless way to get wealthy? <laughs> you know, but when we go to vote, we'll, we'll look at you know, we're swayed by the arguments of a sweatshop or, you know, whatever, even though, um, that, that's not how a company gets rich going into a poor country, right? They're going there because they're trying to, uh, you know, save labor costs. And in, in turn, they're driving up the productivity of those workers, which will eventually make those workers rich and that country rich. And his third bias that he has identified is the make work bias. This is a tendency to underestimate the economic benefits of conserving labor, right? This is the famous Melton Friedman story. 
when he's visiting China and uh, he's seeing all these workers with shovels and then the bureaucrats explain, oh, we're building this big uh, office residential complex. And he says, well, why are you using shovels? Why don't you get some earth moving equipment in here? And the bureaucrat looks at him and says, well, it's a jobs program. And Melton Friedman says, oh, well, if you want to create jobs, take away their shovels and give them spoons. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, we wouldn't think this way in our household. We love labor-saving devices, right? We don't worry about how we're going to spend the hours that that our washing machine saves us, (laughs) right? But we confuse confuse the illusion that employment is the measure of prosperity, but it's actually production that is the measure of prosperity. So an economy is not about creating jobs. And I'll tell you, I've been flayed for saying this um, because it just sounds so disheartening you know, or, or, uh, so antithetical to most people's beliefs about, about jobs. We've got to create jobs. We've got, no, that's not what the economy does. Economy is not about creating jobs. We'd love to have a high standard of living without working. <laughs> I right. mean, it, it's, it's not about creating jobs. It's about production, right? That's the ultimate measure of the wealth of economy is what, what the output is, not what the input is. So saving labor, we've been doing that since we emerged from the cave. Mm-hmm. And no, so, absolutely. And his last uh, bias is the pessimistic bias. And, and, and this we know well, a tendency to overestimate the severity of economic problems and underestimate the recent past, present, and future performance of the economy. I mean, and, you know, you see this, you can go throughout history and see this, the Club of Rome, right? Rob Thomas Malthus saying, oh, the population's going to outstrip, growth in population is going to outstrip food supply. Um, but one point he makes that I found really interesting, he says, as, as we do better, right, uh, over time, as our wealth increases, your children have to do even better, Right. Because you did better than your dad. Now, Sean has to do better than you. And he says optimism declines. We're just, there's something about the human brain that's just kind of geared towards pessimism. Right. Well, yes. Well, because it, because it saved your life. Right. At, yes. At, at, back in, in, in cave times. Pessimism, concern, cause for alarm saved your life. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I think uh, Steven Pinker, one of the anthropologists, wrote a book about what, why we're, why we have a bias towards pessimism, you know, and and why it sells so well in news media and other places is kind of fascinating. But um, you know, he he says Kaplan's basic point in this book to sum it up, he says if people are rational consumers mm-hmm. and irrational voters. It's a good idea to rely more on markets and less on politics. <laughs> I think that's probably a really good point. Well, and and herein lies why the the, the folks whose paycheck depends on government largesse completely disagree with this theory and want to you know th- throw it out the window. I mean, per- perhaps the silliest critique I read on this. I'm just going to read this to you because it's it's. It's it's just so bizarre, but this is the the actual critique. Uh, a, a, a professor by the name of Linda McQuaig, who writes in her book All You Can Eat, the absurdity of public choice theory is captured by Nobel Prize winning economist uh, Artemis Sen in the following scenario: Can you direct me to the railway station? Asked a stranger. Certainly, says the local, pointing in the opposite direction and towards the post office. And would you post this letter for me on your way? 
Certainly, says the stranger, resolving to open open it to see if it contains anything worth stealing. <laughs> right? That's the <laughs> argument. <laughs> and... And the, and the and the rationale around it, uh, 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 around it is really the opposite of think what, of what we're actually arguing here. And uh, Ron, you and I were talking about this during the during the break. These things are so interrelated. It, it's not that they're disparate, and, and and that's what the argument was: is that these are just disparate ideas. They don't really necessarily make sense together once you put them together. But they do because it's not, it's not that they're disparate. It's that they're so commingled and interwoven with one another that is the big challenge. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we look at uh, the market and we can identify greed and we can identify fraud and malfeasance and lying and non-transparency and all of these bad things, which certainly exist. But somehow when we turn our eyes to the government, uh, even the words we use, Ed, public service, public servant, for the greater good, you know, mm-hmm. and, and what public choice is saying is, hey, wait a minute, these people face a bag of incentives just like the market actors. And, and to, to ignore that is it, just to be blinded uh, to reality. Well, it really does explain why, you know, Congress has a, what, 20% approval rating or less, yet 90 plus percent of them get reelected. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because it's, it's always your guy that's doing the right thing, but it's the other guy that's the, that's the problem. The, uh, and, and in fact, that's brought out, I think, in, in Kaplan's book, is part of the problem is, is that we have geographic districts in the national legislature. Right. Every, everybody hates lawyers, but they love theirs. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I think it's the same with congressmen. Uh, What did somebody say? I I forget who said this, but politics is Hollywood for ugly people. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. Love that. All right, Ron. Well, wow. We're done with another uh, show of the Soul of Enterprise, and we're ready to wrap things up. But we got some uh, some things coming up next week. We want to make one more uh, plea for you to to, kind of get out and take a look at Amazon.com and take a look at our book, The Dialogues on the Business Economy. You can do that by going to Amazon. Uh, you can go to Amazon and just search for The Soul of Enterprise, or we have now a new URL set up, Ron, called thesoulofenterprise.com slash book, and that will take you immediately to to our book. So please uh, check us out and write a review of that as well. Oh, fantastic. And we do have the paperback version out of that book too, folks, The Soul of Enterprise. So if you want to get it in hardcover or you know paperback, you can still get it that way. But Ed, what's on uh, store for next week? I am thrilled to announce that one of my Sage colleagues and someone I have a tremendous amount of admiration for, uh, Brad Smith, who uh, at Sage is the EVP and uh, uh, global EVP, I should say, of customer experience at Sage. I've had some fantastic conversations with with Brad over the last uh, two or three years since he's been at Sage, and boy, this this is a smart dude, man. I'm telling you, he's gonna he's gonna rock you. Oh, awesome. I'm looking forward to that. I'll see you in 167 hours, Ed. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at www.verisage.com slash TSOE.